Hi, welcome to Bookie. Today we will unlock the book The Emperor of All Maladies. When someone mentioned cancer, presumably nobody asks them to introduce the word. Cancer is a term for an aggressive, hard-to-cure disease. People with cancer face not only a huge financial burden but often also a death sentence. According to data released by the World Health Organization, in 2015, 8.8 million deaths were attributable to cancer globally, and nearly one-sixth of all deaths were caused by cancer. In the United States, one in three women and one in two men will develop cancer in their lifetime. What kind of disease is cancer? Can cancer be completely cured? The emperor of all maladies will help answer these questions. Guiding us through the history of the struggle between humans and cancer, the book reveals the origin of cancer and the development of cancer treatments. At the same time, it paints a colorful picture of humanity, telling us stories of patients, researchers, and activists in their personal battles against cancer. The author of this book Siddhartha Mukherjee is an Indian-American physician, scientist, writer, cancer specialist, and associate professor of Columbia University Medical Center. He wrote this book to answer a question asked by his patient, who was battling a severe abdominal cancer. Her cancer had relapsed and she had to go through another treatment. At some point the patient said, well, I'm willing to go on, but in order to go on I need to know what it is I'm battling. The author took six years to study the historical events, professional literature, media reports, patient interviews, and a host of other materials to answer her question, and ended up writing this book. Next, we'll deconstruct this book for you in three parts. Part 1. What exactly is cancer? Part 2. Cancer treatment and prevention. Part 3. Two important figures in the history of cancer resistance. Let's start with part 1. What exactly is cancer? In your experience, does it ever occur to you that cancer has suddenly appeared more frequently or even exploded in recent years? You might be surprised to learn cancer did not appear all of a sudden, and it has a very long history. A description of cancer has been found from as early as 2500 BC in an ancient Egyptian text, Bulging Tumor of the Breast. Touching them is like touching a ball of wrapping. For treatment, the ancient volume states, there is none. Around 500 BC, Artosa, a 36-year-old Persian queen suffered from stage 3 breast cancer. She wrapped her cancerous breasts with a cloth to hide it, but eventually, in a fit of foresighted anger, asked her slaves to cut off her breasts with a knife. Besides written records, pathologists have found cancer in ancient corpses preserved for thousands of years, the oldest of which is a case of abdominal cancer from Egypt in 400 AD. In 168 AD, the Greek doctor Claudius Galen inferred the cause of the oncological disease. He believed that cancer was a mass formed by the condensation of black bile. Galen believed that even if surgery was done to remove a tumor, black bile would flow back to the original place, so surgical resection of the tumor was not a permanent cure. After Galen's death, his theory of black bile carcinogenesis influenced the medical world for more than a thousand years. So many doctors believed that it was best not to perform surgery to remove a tumor. To some extent, Galen inadvertently did a good deed for later generations, because as medical conditions were primitive at that time, with rusty scalpels and absence of anesthetics and antibiotics, 
surgery often endangered the patient's life. As you can see, cancer has been around since time immemorial, but there is also little documentation of cancer, mainly because it is an age-related disease. The higher the age of a person, the higher the probability of getting cancer. In ancient times, the average life expectancy of humans was short, and they were also threatened by diseases, such as plague, smallpox, cholera, and tuberculosis, which meant that people often died before they got cancer. And even when they got cancer, it was often accompanied by the onset of various other diseases which obscured the presence of cancer. In the 19th century, the discovery and spread of antibiotics changed the face of public health and disease treatment. The incidence of diseases such as typhoid fever, tuberculosis, and smallpox was decreasing, but the number of deaths from cancer climbed. In the United States, from 1900 to 1916, the mortality rate of cancer increased by 29.8%, slightly higher than that of tuberculosis. By 1926, cancer had become the second most common cause of death in the United States, after heart disease. People often attribute the cause of cancer to the transition of civilization, and it is believed that the rush and disorder of modern life stimulate pathological changes in the body. But actually, it is the advancement of civilization that prolongs people's lifespan, and thus exposes cancer. With the surge in the incidence of cancer, people began to study the pathogenesis of the disease. In the 1850s, most scientists believed that cancer was the inflammatory response of the immune system to a damaged tissue, which caused cells to proliferate and led to the generation of malignant cells. For example, the death of a patient with leukemia was attributed to an abscess or infection by doctors. It was pathologist David Paul von Hansemann who first saw that chromosomes in cancer cells had abnormal shape, unlike those in normal cells. He then proposed that the real aberration occurred on the structure of the chromosomes inside cancer cells, suggesting that it was the cancer cells themselves that caused the problem. But von Hansemann could not prove whether the, the abnormal shape of the chromosomes were the cause or effect of cancer. Following this, Theodore Boveri carried out an experiment on urchin eggs, and observed cells that had abnormal chromosomes failed to develop. He thus concluded that chromosomes carried crucial information for normal cell development and growth. Then he extended this conclusion to the cause of cancer, proposing a bold theory that chromosomal abnormalities are the cause of the pathological growth of cancer. Around the same time, Peyton Rue of Rockefeller College discovered that cancer in chickens was caused by a virus, later called Rue sarcoma virus. This was seen a contradiction to the theory proposed by Boveri. Viruses are pathogens, foreign invaders, while chromosomes are internal entities of the human body. Surely these two opposing entities could not be the cause of the same disease? As such, at the beginning of the 20th century, scientists' views on the mechanism of cancer still wobbles between viruses and chromosomes. Before all the dispute about the origin of cancer, in the 1860s, Gregor Mendel had published his P-experiment inheritance theory. The theory holds that genetic traits are transmitted by independent information packets, and organisms transmit instructions from a cell to offspring by transferring these information packets. Botanists later called this unit a gene. Then, in 1915, there was a breakthrough in genetic research by embryologist Thomas Hunt Morgan, namely the discovery that chromosomes contain genes. 
Morgan student George Beadle together with a biochemist Edward Tatum, would later discover that genes provide the instructions to synthesize proteins, the workhorse performing the majority of cellular functions. However, although the inner working of a normal cell was better understood by then, scientists still couldn't agree on the origin of cancer. In 1958, Howard Temin succeeded in growing cancer on a Petri dish by adding Rusarcoma virus to a layer of healthy cells. Subsequently, Temin observed that the virus altered the genetic makeup of the cells, which was a big aha moment that answered the big question of the origin of cancer. This finding however couldn't convince the scientific community. Finally, in 1970, Temin was able to prove that that cancer was caused by genetic mutations, which could be induced by virus infection. This was the unifying explanation of the origin of cancer. In a normal cell, robust genetic circuits regulate cell division and death. But in a cancer cell, these circuits have been broken due to genetic mutations, causing cells to constantly grow unrestricted. A normal cell dies or stops growing at some point, but a cancer cell due to its mutated genes, can divide, grow, and metastasize forever, destroying other tissues, invading other organs, and expanding to distant sites of the body. This genetic mutation can occur in a variety of different cells in our body, so cancer is not a term for one disease. Instead, it's a collective term for many diseases, such as leukemia, breast cancer, gastric cancer, lung cancer, and so on. We refer to them collectively as cancer. Once cancer cells begin to grow abnormally, they will seize the living space and all the energy required by other normal cells to grow. Once cancer cells invade the human body, they push our body to its physiological limit, causing each system of our body to operate like walking on the razor's sharp edge, eventually moving towards death. That's all for the first part. Let's recall some key points of this part. Cancer has a long history with records dating as far back as 2500 BC. However, there was not much documentation on cancer in the ancient times, mainly due to the short lifespan of ancient humans, as well as the presence of symptoms of other diseases such as plagues, smallpox, and pneumonia, which obscured the onset of cancer. In the 19th century, along with the development of civilization and the progress of medical science, humans' lifespan began to extend, and cancer gradually became one of the main causes of death. After research by generations of scientists, it was finally recognized that cancer is a result of genetic mutations. These mutations cause cells to grow abnormally, divide indefinitely, and then invade various organs of the human body, ultimately leading to death. Next, here comes the second part, cancer treatment and prevention. Although medieval surgeons didn't understand the pathogenesis of cancer, sometimes they removed the tumor mass by surgery. Of course, like we just mentioned, the mortality rate from this procedure was forbidding due to the poor medical conditions. It wasn't until the invention of anesthesia and sterilization between 1846 and 1867, that surgery was finally freed from the constraints of medieval medicine. By the mid-1890s, Surgeon Bill Roth had performed resection surgery on 41 patients with gastric cancer with a success rate of 46%. 19 of those patients survived. These events marked a critical progress in cancer treatment. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, the main treatment for cancer was radical surgery. 
It was surgeon William Halstead who introduced this concept and brought it to the extreme. Halstead was bold, determined creative, and confident in his technique. To uproot cancer from its very source, Halstead removed patients' breast, ribs, and other tissues in the thoracic cavity, as well as axillary and subclavian lymph nodes. This was indeed an extremely radical surgery, because it was permanently destroying the patient's body. But Halstead believed that it was acceptable to remove a part of the body in order to preserve the patient's life. However, could radical resection surgery really cure breast cancer? The answer unfortunately is no. One statistic showed that after the radical resection of 76 breast cancer patients, only 40 patients survived for three years, while the other 36 patients died of cancer less than three years after surgery. Eventually, doctors realized that the success of surgery depended on how much the cancer had spread. If the cancer was benign before surgery, then resection of the local tissue would be sufficient, if it was malignant and had metastasized, then radical resection was not necessarily effective. So, is there a more effective treatment plan? In 1895, Wilhelm C. Röntgen, a German lecturer discovered X-rays, which were emitted by radioactive substances, such as radium, a new element which Marie Curie later discovered. X-rays emitted by radium not only could penetrate human tissues but also release energy deep into tissues, killing cells in the process. Because of its ability to rapidly kill cells, radiotherapy using X-rays was beginning to receive attention from cancer researchers. Doctors started seeing evidence that X-rays therapy cured breast cancer patients somewhat successfully, in which the patient's breast tumor tightened and shrank. In this way, a new branch of oncology medicine radiation oncology was born, and became sought after. However, it was soon realized that radiotherapy has two limitations, first, X-rays could only be used for local irradiation, and as such the therapeutic effect for tumors that have metastasized was limited. The second limitation is that radiation could cause cancer. Marie Curie eventually died of leukemia due to long-term exposure to radium. Medical scientists did not stop exploring. In the 1950s, a new generation of cancer specialists were using a combination of surgery and X-ray radiotherapy with better outcomes, compared with using the two methods independently. So, is there a drug that could specifically kill malignant cancer cells without harming patients' healthy cells? Paul Ehrlich, a student at the Leipzig University School of Medicine in Germany was fixated on this question. He conducted a series of experiments using chemicals from dye factories, in the hope of finding a substance that can specifically target cancer cells. From 1904 to 1908, Ehrlich designed several protocols to find this anti-cancer drug, but all of them failed. This was not long before Europe started preparing for World War I. Soon, dye factories that used to supply Ehrlich started producing toxic gases for war. One that was particularly toxic was mustard gas, named after its unmistakable smell. One night, near the small Belgian town of Ypres, mustard gas bombing killed over 2,000 soldiers. In 1919, American pathologists Edward B. Crumbar and Helen D. Crumbar studied several soldiers who survived Ypres bombing. They found that the bone marrow of survivors had significantly shrunken, and the number of their white blood cells was way below the normal levels. The mustard gas had wiped out a specific population of cells in these survivors. 
This is exactly what Ehrlich was looking for some 15 years earlier. But in war-torn Europe, no one was paying attention to this discovery. It wasn't until 1943 that two scientists at Yale University, Goodman and Gilman confirmed that mustard gas specifically killed white blood cells. They first injected the nitrogen mustard into animals, and after seeing a positive result, they treated a lymphoma patient with the same substance. They showed that mustard made white blood cells of the blood and bone marrow almost disappear, without burning the healthy tissues. This discovery kick-started the era of chemotherapy, using one of the first of many anti-cancer drugs that would be discovered later. The discovery of these anti-cancer drugs triggered the emergence of new therapies. After the 1970s, tumor resection surgery was often supplemented with medical chemotherapy to reduce the probability of recurrence. However, doctors faced another challenge when they realized that with a prolonged use of a chemotherapy drug, cancer cells grew resistant to it. So they would use multiple drugs at the same time for a treatment. Problem is, these chemotherapy drugs are after all poisons, which can attack cancer cells but also eventually harm the normal cells, producing different degrees of side effects, such as vomiting, hair loss, and weakened immune systems. By the 1980s, scientists began to study targeted anti-cancer drugs. The principle of targeted drugs is to silence cancer-causing genes or interrupt the pathway that activates them. In 1993, medical scientist Brian Drucker discovered that Gleevec, a molecule owned by a pharmaceutical company called Novartis, could specifically target a hyperactive gene in chronic myeloid leukemia cells. Druka had to beg Novartis to develop Gleevec, because there were only a few thousand patients with chronic myelogenous leukemia each year in the United States. Clinical trials cost a lot of money, and Novartis believed that they wouldn't make any profit from this drug due to the low incidence of the disease. So they refused to develop Gleevec, with excuses that it would not be effective, too toxic, and would not make any money. After several setbacks and persuasions by Druka, in 1998, Novartis finally gave in and agreed to synthesize Gleevec, only enough for Druka to carry out clinical trials on 100 patients. Luckily, the efficacy of Gleevec was soon evident. Out of the 54 patients that Druka tested the drug on, 53 showed a positive response within a few days of taking the drug. Since then, Gleevec has been widely used for the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia patients with significant effect. Now, Cancer specialists often use the terms pre-Gleevec era and post-Gleevec era to refer to different periods when discussing chronic myelogenous leukemia. In the pre-Gleevec era, the preferred therapy for chronic myelogenous leukemia was bone marrow transplantation. Doctors would tell patients that they had got a very bad disease and that they probably had a few years to live. In the post-Gleevec era, doctors would tell patients that they have a manageable leukemia with excellent prognosis they can resume their lives as long as they take Gleevec. By the time Mukherjee wrote this book, about a decade after the birth of Gleevec, the National Cancer Institute had listed 24 targeted anti-cancer drugs. More than a dozen other drugs were being developed. Arguably, targeted therapy has taken cancer treatment a big step forward. However, humans have not yet fully conquered cancer, there are many types of cancer for which we don't have the perfect cure. Therefore, cancer prevention is extremely important. So far, 
Cancer prevention mainly relies on the identification of the cause of cancer using two approaches. One involves large-scale retrospective studies on a population to associate certain cancer with risk factors. For example, in the 1940s, Dahl and Hill carried out interviews with a group of lung cancer patients and a group of control patients without cancer in London. As a result, they identified smoking as a risk factor for lung cancer through. The other approach involves experiments to identify carcinogens based on their ability to cause bacterial mutations or stimulate carcinogenesis in humans. For example, in 1984, Physician Barry Marshall swallowed pure culture of Helicobacter pylori to prove that the bacteria can cause gastritis, a precursor to stomach cancer. The link between Helicobacter pylori-induced gastritis and stomach cancer was later confirmed by several epidemiological studies a few years later. As we gain more knowledge, and become aware of carcinogens and other factors that can cause cancer, we can take preventive measures to reduce our risks of developing cancer. For example, we can quit smoking, minimize eating processed food and drinking alcohol, or minimize exposure to radiation. Additionally, we can also take cancer screening tests to detect cancer before the symptoms appear, such as pap smear for cervical cancer, and helicobacter pylori infection screening for stomach cancer. By detecting cancer in its early stage, patients' chances for recovery are much higher. That's all for part 2. In the late 19th century, the invention of anesthesia and disinfection allowed doctors to perform resection surgery with higher success rate. Doctors were now able to operate on cancer patients, and this led to radical surgery gradually becoming popular. But soon they realized that this extreme approach could not eradicate cancer that had metastasized. Then, in the 1940s, one of the first anti-cancer drugs nitrogen mustard was discovered, marking the start of the era of chemotherapy. In the 1970s, tumor surgery was often complemented with chemotherapy. As chemotherapy proved to be taxing on human body, scientists started to develop targeted anti-cancer drugs. The first of such drugs was Gleevec. At this point, the treatment of cancer included surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and targeted drug therapy. Although there are many treatment options now, humans have not fully conquered cancer. Our best bet is thus cancer prevention. There have been many research conducted to identify the risk factors of cancer and carcinogenic agents. These studies inform us about among others, the danger of smoking, and the importance of physical examinations for early cancer detection. Next, in the third part, let's talk about the two outstanding figures in the history of cancer resistance. Throughout history, from Persian queen Artursa who made her slaves remove her cancerous breasts, to the conservative treatment of Claudius Galen, to today's local operations, radiotherapy and targeted therapy, cancer treatment continues to advance. Humans have been able to make this progress not only through the contribution of scientists, pathologists, and medical doctors, but also patients and healthy people who voluntarily participate in trials of new drugs or raise money for cancer research. Without these practitioners and volunteers, it wouldn't have been possible to find any cure for cancer. Here, let us introduce you to two important persons and their important work in the history of cancer resistance in the United States. The first is Sidney Farber, the father of modern chemotherapy. And the second is Mary Lasker, 
a famous socialite in Manhattan and a fairy godmother of medical research. Sidney Farber was a pathologist whose job involved dissecting specimens, performing autopsies, identifying cells, and diagnosing diseases in the semi-basement of Boston's Children's Hospital, but he never treated patients. He spent 20 years studying human tissues and cells, and was promoted to the directorship of the Department of Pathology at the Children's Hospital, after which he began trying to seek further breakthroughs from studying inanimate specimens to treating patients. He sought to use the knowledge obtained from pathological specimens to design new treatments for leukemia. There are two types of leukemia, namely chronic leukemia and acute leukemia. Acute leukemia is further divided into acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia. In children the most common type is acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is almost always rapid and fatal. The book cited a case of a five-year-old girl who was initially lethargic at school and developed red bruises on her skin, so she was taken to the clinic. The next day, however, she began to complain of a stiff neck and developed a high fever. At dusk, the little girl vomited blood and fell into a coma. On the third day, the little girl suddenly died. At that time, acute leukemia was the source of confusion and frustration for many doctors. After more than a century after its discovery, leukemia was still an incurable disease. A medical journal once described leukemia coldly as, diagnosis, blood transfusion go home and die. On September 6, 1947, Sidney Farber began a clinical experiment with a two-year-old patient named Sandler, who suffered from acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Earlier, inspired by past findings on the treatment of anemia, Farber had tried using folate to treat leukemia patients. But instead of curing the disease, folate accelerated it. This time, Farber thought of using antifolate to slow down the cancer. Sandler was injected with a type of antifolate called teroylaspartic acid. But the experiment had little success, and Sandler became increasingly weaker. Just a few days before the turn of the year, Farber received a new type of antifolate called aminopterin, which he injected into the boy. This time, the result was remarkable. The number of white blood cells in the boy first plateaued and then began to decline. By New Year's Eve, the number of white blood cells finally approached normal levels. Although the cancer cells did not disappear completely, Sandler's condition significantly improved, an important turning point in the fight against leukemia. This gave people hope that acute leukemia could be cured. After this first success, Farber saw more children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. He confirmed that aminopterin treatment were able to relieve these children's symptoms to various degrees. Two boys could even go back to school. He published his discovery on New England Journal of Medicine in June 1948, just a few months after the publication of Gilman and Goodman's paper on nitrogen mustard. However, in cancer, remission does not always equals victory. After a few months of symptom relief with antifolate treatment, the cancer would ultimately relapse in these children, sidestepping the effect of the miracle drug. Sandler, the first boy who received antifolate treatment, died in 1948 after a few months of remission. Farber's failed to completely cure leukemia with antifolate. But, albeit temporarily, he made an aggressive systemic cancer disappear with an aggressive chemical drug therapy, which was an unprecedented breakthrough for cancer. 
The discovery of antifolate as an anti-cancer drug to treat acute leukemia was Faber's first contribution to the development of cancer treatment. The second contribution that Faber made was through advocating for cancer research. Faber hoped to develop a drug that could kill cancer cells without harming normal cells. However, he suffered alienation from the Children's Hospital due to the failure of his first experiment using folate to treat leukemia, and the short-lived effect of the second attempt using antifolate. While he wanted to create a powerful platform, a research hospital dedicated to children's cancer, in order to speed up the development of treatment, the hospital no longer gave him support. A lack of money and connections was a major problem for Faber. As luck would have it, a group of men from show business toured his laboratory looking for a children charity project. With their help, Faber raised $231,000 through a radio broadcast telling the story of Jimmy, a child being treated for a lymphoma. More money poured into Jimmy Fund later, which Faber used to establish his children cancer hospital. This made Faber realize that the campaign against cancer was much like a political campaign. It required idols, mascots, images, and slogans. Therefore, to continue to advance cancer research, promotion was necessary. Faber's vision was far larger than the hospital he built. He wanted to drive a political change in curing cancer. Faber needed a force that would far exceed the Jimmy Fund in terms of influence, organizational power, and money. This force, Faber would soon find in a person who is Mary Lasker. Mary Lasker was an enterprising and well-connected Manhattan socialite. She was married to a businessman and advertising wizard Albert Lasker. Both of them, being extraordinary networkers, had a wide range of social circles and powerful contacts. After losing her mother to heart attack, Mary Lasker began her exploration of healthcare philanthropy. Appalled at the lack of knowledge in disease treatment, she made it her mission to fight heart attacks and cancer. Using her influence, and with her husband as her supporter and advisor, she raised a lot of money from private donors and politicians to fund medical research. In just a few years, she had become what the media called the fairy godmother of medical research. In 1943, Mary Lasker became acquainted to the American Society for the Control of Cancer, or ASCC for short. Disappointed with the rigid and dying state of the social club, she began working on her own on a media campaign against cancer, and later on set out to reform this organization. Within five years, she overhauled the entire structure of ASCC, replacing all of the board members with businessmen, and turning it into an effective lobbying machine. Mary Lasker's next target was the Congress, and for that, what she needed was an ally from the scientific community to launch a war on cancer. She would find her ally in Sidney Farber. Farber and Lasker found the perfect partner in each other, and they worked together for decades to change the political landscape of cancer research in the United States. In the end, although their dream of setting up a NASA for cancer was crushed in the Congress, a cancer bill was passed in December 1971, securing a total of $1.5 billion US dollars authorized for cancer research over the following three years. We just listened to the third part of this bookie. Now, let us have a systematic review of what we have learned today. In the first part, we talked about the long history of cancer, dating back to as early as 2500 BC, the earliest written record of cancer. In the 19th century, 
Along with the development of civilization and the progress of medical science, human lifespan extended, and cancer gradually became one of the main causes of death. After research by generations of scientists, it was finally recognized that cancer is a result of genetic mutations. These mutations cause cells to grow abnormally, divide indefinitely, and then invade various organs of the human body, ultimately leading to death. In the second part, we learned that in the late 19th century, the invention of anesthesia and disinfection allowed doctors to perform resection surgery on cancer patients with higher success rate. Radical surgery gradually became popular, but soon doctors realized that this extreme approach could not eradicate cancer that had metastasized. Then, in the 1940s, one of the first anti-cancer drugs nitrogen mustard was discovered, marking the start of the era of chemotherapy. In the 1970s, surgery was often complemented with chemotherapy. As chemotherapy proved to be taxing on human body, in the 1980s, scientists began working on the development of targeted anti-cancer drugs. The first of such drugs was Gleevec. At this point, the treatment of cancer includes surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and targeted drug therapy. Although there are many treatment options now, humans have not fully conquered cancer. Our best bet is thus cancer prevention. Studies identifying carcinogens and risk factors for cancer inform us about among others, the danger of smoking and the importance of physical examinations for early cancer detection. In the last part, we talked about two important figures in the history of anti-cancer campaign in the United States. One was Sidney Farber, the father of modern chemotherapy, who discovered antifolates as an anti-cancer drug to treat acute lymphoblastic leukemia. The second one was Mary Lasker, a socialite in Manhattan, who used her influence and business savviness to raise funds for cancer research and run anti-cancer campaigns. Farber and Lasker worked together for decades to change the political landscape of cancer research funding in the U.S., and as a result a bill was passed in the Congress, authorizing a considerable sum of money for cancer research. In the fight against cancer, defeat is more common than victory. But humans have not given up. Scientists, pathologists, and medical scientists are still tirelessly working on advancing cancer treatments. Cancer is an intricate disease, and cancer cells are highly susceptible to drug resistance. Therefore, in the war against cancer, we need people from all walks of life to continuously work together to advance our understanding of cancer, and innovate to catch up with the pace of cancer.